0: Hello, and welcome to the DevDC podcast. My name is Seamus Reardon, and today we have Mitch Purtle. Uh, Mitch has more than two decades of experience founding companies and years of leading free and open source software projects. Prior to Morning Consult, Mitch was a director of software engineering at Cap One from 2015 to 2018, where he helped lead Capital One become branded as a technology first company. So good morning, Mitch. How are you doing? All right. How are you doing, sir? I'm great. Thanks for uh, hopping on this morning and joining us for the DevDC podcast. Uh, as we discussed, this is really geared towards the growth of software engineers and developers. Uh, we talk about your career, uh, share what you're seeing in the industry, and then any invi- advice or insights that you might have for software engineers out there. So, uh, Mitch, let's hop right into it. Um, how about you give us your story?
1: Yeah, I think uh, actually you could pretty much sum up my uh, my entire technology career with a with an obscure D anD D reference as a joke. Is is I've always kind of had the special skill of plaything of the gods. I did not have a specific goal with my career, and so that's led me far and wide. Um, but that also meant that it took me twenty years to get done what would take other people five or seven. Um, so that that would be probably big piece of advice. Number one is that if you're really wanting to progress and progress quickly as a software engineer, the more focus that you have, the faster you're going to progress. But uh, yeah, I started as a hardware engineer, actually at Apple, uh, partly responsible for the two worst Macs ever made. And then I went down the street to Sun and was on prototypes called uh, Campus and Hydra, which went on to become their first like Spark uh, commercial offerings, which was a bread and butter for the next couple of decades. And then I uh, I lived in Seattle in the 90s, which was wicked timing. And uh um, <laughs> besides all the activities that were happening up there um, that was when I really started getting into software and open source in particular so I got involved in the, the Linux 1x kernel for example I think it was also drivers uh, for Sound Blaster cards and um, also about, some... about
0: what year would that have been
1: uh, actually that was later that was in the mid 90s okay so pretty
0: I would say early on so my exposure to
1: well my exposure to open source for what is open source open source was uh, uh, ninety four right um, yeah. that was when uh, you were you were installing slackware off a of floppy and that was just how it was going to be it was that or you got a small business loan so you could afford a thirty thousand dollars or a sunbox right so if you wanted to run Unix at home and learn you had to use you know open source because it was the only thing you could really do as a as a as a mere mortal right now it's right. so accessible it's amazing so I would say that's probably the huge benefit for everybody is there's all this like enterprise grade, you know, space age tech that we all can just run at home on our own machines for darn near free,
0: right? I mean, you, you certainly have a diverse background, right? So you've been in these yeah. large companies like Cap One. Uh, I saw that you've either been the founder or co-founder of of four companies. Um, you know, as you reflect on your career, are there like one or two roles that you had that you think like most impacted your trajectory? Um, You know, as a professional,
1: I would look back. Funny enough, I would say the two jobs that had the most impact on my career um, would be in the early 90s. I joined a company in Seattle called Sequent Computer Systems. They got bought by IBM uh, late in the 90s, I believe. And they were the ones that pioneered what we called NUMA architecture, non-unified memory architecture, which was basically instead of, it's kind of the opposite of what we're doing now with the cloud. We've got a pile of memory over here and a pile of disk over here. This was all packed into one card. So you could just have like blades, right? That was sure. what HP, their data blades, that kind of stuff. That's that's where that kind of began. Um, and that was when I really got serious about my career in technology. So that was that was part of my some of my biggest learning. Uh, mm-hmm. The other job... Because when I was there, I was basically a consultant, right? I was a plaything of the Seattle sales office. And uh, they had a salesman, uh, Greg Clevin was his name, and he was always on, always selling. Yeah. And we we more or less, you know, played drop the cat, right? Where you take the cat upside down, drop it to see if it lands on its feet. And I was the cat. And the sales folks were the ones playing the game. And so they sold whatever they could. And it was up to me to figure out how to make it work. Um, so it was kind of dubious, I guess, from an ethical perspective. But it was, sure was a lot of fun. Uh, and then the, the second career... Uh, I would say that really uh, made a huge impact on my um, on my uh, trajectory would probably be Totsi, which was a startup uh, in the mid aughts in Manhattan, and um, it was uh, it was a private sale site that was targeting moms with uh, small kids, you know. And uh, so what we were doing was we we pinched uh, the president from FAO Schwartz, and he was calling everybody in his address book to get sweet deals on you know luxury products you know really high visibility brand products uh, at prices that we couldn't advertise to the public or that would infuriate their sales channels right that's how the sales the private sale model works so we were we were doing a lot of business there I was brought in as a CTO and I was the only techie in the business when I first showed up they had, they'd paid a freelancer to build an initial prototype in rails and it was just a hot mess and uh, none of it worked the database had no uh, no indexes, had no, nothing. It was just a bunch of basically flat files shoved into a database and with zero tuning whatsoever. So you can imagine it was just a dumpster fire. And uh, so I hired a, a, a senior-ish front-end engineer and a seniorish back-end engineer. And we just started ha- hammering away. And um, that, that crew grew well over a hundred before I ended up leaving because um, I, I married a European on a personal note. So we, okay. every decade, we'll randomly relocate to Europe and at this point it was it, we just randomly chose tour Italy. And uh but but my learning at Totsy was really good learning because it was it was uh everything from being like your your initial, you know, uh grunt programmer where you just have to build everything yourself really hands-on uh to becoming more of like a technical leader sure. and being more and then evolving more into like a systems architect. Um and while all that's happening, you also gotta be an exec, you gotta be a strategist, you gotta you know, go through the board beatings and, and all the other stuff that happens to folks in the C-suite. Um, so there was a ton of learning pretty much from start to finish, basically across the entire spectrum of what a technology career could encompass. Yeah, like sure. It's all in one job, right. right? So it's like maximum, maximum suffering, maximum learning. All at the same time.
0: <laughs> Interesting. So, uh, you know, you kind of kicked it off with your advice of being like, Hey, follow up, follow a certain path, right. Uh, in order to progress your career as quickly as possible. However, when I asked, you know, where did you get your, you know, I guess two key careers, uh, two cre- two key stops in your career that really affected your trajectory? You mentioned two startups, right? And you, it seems like you got to wear a lot of different hats. So, how, as as someone who's out there right now, right? Let's say, you know, they have one to five years of software engineering experience. How do they balance, you know, being at a big company like Cap One's one of the most innovative companies that. That's in the DC, Maryland, Virginia area, right? How do they mm-hmm. balance being like, you know, like I want to aim for cap one first. Hey, like I want to take a shot at like a Totsy or a Sequent where I might be able to get those kind of, you know, a multitude of experiences, those kind of executive experiences, the kind of leadership experiences, the kind of like, hey, I'm that cat upside down. The sales rep's going to sell something out to figure out how it's how it's going to work. Like how do they balance between startup and an established enterprise?
1: Well, I'm going to, I'm going to use a music analogy. Okay. Uh, and this one, I really enjoy um, s- technology folks are a lot like musicians. You have jazz musicians who just need a beat and then they're off and running, right? Then yep. you have classical musicians who they need their music and then they need to go practice and quiet and just get comfortable with what they're doing and digest and kind of think things through. And then they come back and now they're ready to practice with everybody else and then perform. Right. And there's, there's no right way of doing it. Right. There's 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 benefits of being uh, really uh, inspirational and aspirational and and just kind of riffing it like yeah. a jazz musician would. But then there's also a, a kind of quiet satisfaction you can get from really digging your teeth into something and understanding everything fully before you allow yourself to form an opinion about it. Right. Right. And so depending on which which of these types of personalities you would you should be able to. I mean, and for a lot of folks that are early on, they don't know. Right. Is, they're, they're figuring that out. If you do know that you kind of prefer the chaotic lots of context switches kind of environment, then startups are for you, you're going to learn way faster in that environment. If you're not and you like to live in a more structured environment um, where you know things are things are more predictable and that allows you to just kind of focus and really go head deep into what you want to learn and learn it all the way. Yeah, right. Uh, then then getting in a larger organization would give you that kind of stability. Um, to, to, to do that, that style of learning, which, which in itself is, is interesting. Probably the hardest part about careers in tech, at least from my opinion, is titles are totally pointless at this, at this moment. And they never, I mean, I was chief space monkey for 20 years. So I can, I can, I, of course you have to take my advice with a grain of salt here, but honestly, what is a senior engineer? Um, you'll go to a large organization where you come in as what they call an associate And so the magic HR decoder wheel will spit out associate software engineer, right? And Mm -hmm. 12 months later, when you promote, get promoted to senior associate, which happens to everybody in these big businesses, or they want you to leave, right? That's kind of a subtle reminder that you're not working out. Um, Well, the magic HR decoder spits out senior software engineer, but you only got 12 months of experience. Meanwhile, you know, at one in consult where I was VP of engineering, we wouldn't even talk to you as a candidate for a senior engineer position without six years of experience minimum right? So the disparity between these two levels is massive. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have companies like Facebook where you, 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 uh, it's really funny. So your title is super, super low. It's like really makes it challenges your ego, right? You're, <laughs> sure. You're like, wow, seriously, I've been doing this for this long and you want to call me, you know, one step up from rookie. Yeah. But the pay is two to three times more than anything you've ever seen. Right. So some places will give you crazy high comp and just a an almost embarrassingly uh, insignificantly low title and then other places you get this awesome i like the chief whatever on a business card but he's in a one person company right he's, he's yeah. broke but but he's a but he's a c level exec so so you've, you 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 got to kind of find your balance between those two
0: That's interesting. Does, does it start with having to figure out, you know, are you jazz or are you classical? I think so. Yeah.
1: I think so. I think that's one I think that's one way to, to find out your, well, I mean, think about your learning style, you know? um, Yeah, totally. I'm jazz.
0: I know I'm jazz. (laughs) Yeah. I have to hop right into it. Right. Uh, Yeah.
1: Same, same. I, I, and that's another piece of advice is never, ever stop learning. Um, If I stopped learning, I'd still be talking ADA and COBOL and, you know, retiring vacuum tubes and stuff. And um, to this day, you know, well, last weekend I was traveling, but basically every weekend, I'm installing something I've never seen before or heard before and making myself learn how to use it. Yeah, And uh, you can even give it themes and say, okay, for the, for the month of, of May, I want to really just dig in and DevOps. So I'm going to get in a Terraform first and play around with that on say AWS or Google cloud. And when I'm done with that, I'm going to start playing around with firing up my own Kubernetes infrastructure. And then once I'm done with that, you know, or, you know, you want to get into go well, First, you got to get into the idiom. So just learn how to write a Go program or first weekend. Second weekend, maybe try building something more sophisticated with an existing package. Sure. Um, maybe build something more challenging um, or, or even try to commit uh, to, a, to an open source project. That's actually another interesting um, thing that's happening as of late is you'll see a lot of open source projects will start tagging their issues on GitHub repos as good first issue. And oh, that's uh, interesting. Absolutely absolutely super, super highly uh, recommended for anybody. If you if you think you're not smart enough to contribute to an open source project, man, you're so wrong. I, I can't tell you how wrong you are because they need help everywhere. They're, they're almost always a bunch of unpaid volunteers. They need help with documentation, with testing, to just validate that something works on a specific make and model computer and they can't afford all of them. Um, so there's a million ways you can contribute. And an open source can can help you as well. I mean, my open-source street cred that I earned back in the early 2000s pretty much carried me through that entire decade. Well, it builds, right? Is, like
0: you said, you didn't stop learning on top of where you were, you know, yeah. a couple of decades ago.
1: Yeah. Right. Well, and I, I also started getting really active as a speaker. So I was opening keynote for a bunch of different conferences. And, uh, and you know, the, the open-source street cred, you know, pays off. Like, you know, this is best in show at Linux World 2005. Oh, that's
0: great. Yeah. Um,
1: our competition was... KDE, Red Hat, Postgres, MySQL, uh, and, and uh, somebody else. I think it was Susa, and uh, and we won. We being Mambo before we became Joomla, and yes. uh, and so yeah, that can really raise your profile. Um, there are if you're in writing JavaScript, for example, there are a ton of JavaScript frameworks and, and toolkits out there um, that are that are gaining wide adoption and they can sure use help, mm-hmm. right? So there's there's many opportunities there.
0: So we, we, you know, in our 15 minutes, you brought up open source kind of in two different conversations. So I kind of want to circle back and, and, and just, um, I guess, one, talk about, where you see like open source going as far as like an enterprise, you know, adoption. Cause we're seeing Capital One and these other great enterprise organizations truly invest dollars in it, right? Which means it's gonna be supported and the innovations like on a trajectory like this, right? So could you talk a little bit about that? And then could you also talk, you know, you won that award in 2005. So you have some vision, you know, about what is coming and what could be interesting can you talk a little bit about like in five years from now, what kind of skills you think will be most in demand for software engineers? Sure.
1: Uh, okay. So open source. So yeah, first one, open source, source. second one, most in demand skills in five years. And and open source is mainly from like an enterprise angle.
0: Yeah. From like, uh, Hey, do you see like a rollout, um, of like solutions being, you know, open source and adopted by the enterprise even more or or just, you know, your opinion on that.
1: Um, yeah, I at this point, particularly here in the states, open source mm-hmm. pretty much owns the roost. Yeah, if you're if you're not leveraging open source software, you just you're at a competitive disadvantage. Honestly, um, I was reading an article this morning, uh, funny enough, on LinkedIn, and um, it was about open source being more secure than closed source yeah. tools from a security perspective. And that's a man. That is an ancient, ancient phrase. Given enough eyeballs, all bugs are shallow. Right, we've been saying that for decades and it's absolutely true you know when and, and it's it's different now but I remember the dark days when Microsoft was trying to kill all of us and uh, you know the joke was yeah. they can they can hire a thousand engineers to try to build something better than what we can build but we got 20,000 people looking at our code there's no way they're gonna have the kind of you know view of their yeah, of it's the, impossible. Of the systems that they're building so right a practical matter it's 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 just it's you really can't compete um the the interesting challenge for me when i look at open source and and particularly large enterprises is there's there are enterprises that embrace the use of open source but they're not contributing right and then there are enterprises that are very open and contributing to open source uh, and I, I find those companies a lot more interesting to watch. I think, you know, Netflix is a good example. Mm-hmm. You know, they build a lot of open source stuff. Um, they release a lot of open source stuff. Um, and I don't want to name names, but yeah, there are other companies that are that big that build a lot of stuff, but they're not releasing much. And, uh, you know, some would, would probably say, well, let's, let's, let's point the finger at Amazon, right, at AWS. But if you think about it, their, their whole business model is based on a SaaS offering. So the right. last thing they're going to want to do is build something and then let everybody else run it on their own because that's where they actually get their money back from this investment in the first place. So I don't think it's I don't think it's a, 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 a I don't think it's a logical expectation to say you know they're supposed to be giving all their stuff away too because that that totally invalidates their business model. So that's yeah right <laughs> that's not a reasonable request that's in my fair. opinion yeah sure um, but uh, yeah I would say you know in Europe it's a little more of a challenge. They're still kind of reluctant because they, they're, they're risk averse, right? Uh, and so, whereas here, um, you, can, you can be a little more aggressive with your use of technology. It's okay to make mistakes because you learn from the mistakes. Right. And every now and then you don't make a mistake and you innovate. And, and Americans seem to be more tolerant of that, right? So, so I would say the enterprises in Europe are probably having a harder time embracing open source right now because it's still new and that anything new is scary. Right.
0: So that's like crowd versus core. Right. And then I guess circling back on like the question about the skills in five years, another one is like machine versus, you know, the human, right? Uh, Like Mm -hmm. where's machine learning got to go? I know that's one of the skills that, yeah, is pretty hot right now for some of the engineers. Like how, what kind of, like, what do they need to be learning about in order to be like a good candidate for, you know, that kind of position that involves machine learning?
1: Well, first off, machine learning means you're going to have to learn a ton of higher math mm-hmm. right? Um, if you really want to know what you're doing, if you want to just download a bunch of Python libraries, stitch them together and wonder why your 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 models are 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 giving you bogus output, then go for it but but you really do need to learn how all of the different pieces underneath the hood work. Um, Python seems to be the the ruler of the roost. Yep. Uh, you know, of course, if you want to do quick and dirty on your local machine, ours is always there. But I kind of look at ours kind of like the modern data science version of like Fox Pro or even Microsoft Access. It's really just a, a handy dandy tool to make things easier. I'd rather just use Jupyter Notebooks if you really need a, a, a graphical environment where you can kind of step through stuff. But, um, yeah, I would say if you want to get into machine learning, definitely get into higher math, statistics, um, probability uh, and then from there, you're going to find different areas of machine learning that might find, you might find more interesting. Um, I'm excited about machine learning <clears throat> in that we kind of turned the wrong direction back in the 90s. Computers mm-hmm. were supposed to be doing all the dumb stuff so we could do all the fun stuff. And we flipped it upside down so that computers are doing all the fun stuff and we're doing the dumb stuff right now. So machine learning in my eyes is an opportunity to kind of flip that back around in the direction it should have been headed because we're now training models to do things. Um, and these things are really important. Like uh, you'll see a lot of a lot of startups in the, in the healthcare industry. They're using artificial intelligence to, uh, uh, let's see, Rad AI, for example, out of uh, Berkeley. You know, they're using machine learning to, to rip through all of these uh, reports from radiologists that they put these reports together and find meaning and information in all of this data. I mean, effectively, machine learning is, at its most simplistic perspective is really just using computers to look through data. That's too big for a human to comprehend. Right. Right. Um, but if you, and so far we've done a lot of kind of pointless exercises with it, but we're starting to get into more, way more meaningful um, exercises uh, and, and, and riffing through med- medical data, pharmaceutical data, um, economic data, uh criminal data, for example. Um, you can, you know, if you're if you're wanting to be a policymaker, machine learning can help you figure out, for example, districts where you want to focus on specific legislation based on the population of the behavior there. Right. Uh, and there's just there's a million things you can do with machine learning that's that's valuable. It's just a matter of saying, okay, I gotta first I gotta find the data. I think that's that's kind of like the number one challenge for anybody is, is you know, okay, let's build a machine that does this. Well, okay, first we got to find the data to support sure. it. yeah um, But if you have a data set, then uh, you have something to get started on.
0: Right. I mean, we're starting to see that already kind of hit, right? The components of what is, uh, you know, a data center, whether it's cloud or on-prem or whatever, are going down in cost. And because of that, all organizations can start to leverage data. And we're seeing like IT ops instead of them, you know, being I guess the ruler of budget and where purchases are coming from, it's becoming developers and it's becoming, you know, how do we make DevOps a thing? How do we make enable developers to start using all this data that we're now able to store for a long period of time? And it's not just you know storage; it's compute too. We see things like Snowflake and the components of that go down too. So it's not like you're constrained on RAM and and CPU like it used to be. And that, that yeah. kind of is like a natural segue, Mitch, into you know, the time when you joined Capital One, right? Like they're a financial services organization. You joined in 2015. They went all in AWS. It's pretty publicly known, right? And uh, they, mm-hmm. their goal was to be a technology first company, um, which they are today, right? And you were the the leader of the technology fellows program there. So I was, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about what that is and, and what you did for that program.
1: Okay, first, um, and the thing that I find probably the most unique and significant about Capital One mm-hmm. is there was like in a moment of epiphany where the founder, uh, Rich Fairbank, perfect name for, for starting this company, by the way. Yeah. For, um, a,
0: for a financial services.
1: He looked up from his desktop <laughs> and was like, holy crap, we're not a financial company. We're yeah. a technology company. We make financial products and services. We're doing it all wrong. And that was really, that was the light bulb moment mm-hmm. um, that, that started this huge transformation that we've witnessed over the last 10 years uh, at at uh, Capital One, it's it, I'm amazed to be honest yeah. with you. I'm I'm amazed. Um, so we we founded the Technology Fellows program. The goal was to bring in high profile um, entrepreneurs and open source technology leaders that were, you know, public speakers, you know, savvy communicators, had a lot of street cred, um, and and brought a lot of of change and disruption wherever they went. And that was by design, just based on, on their personality type. Right. Um, I think I was, I wasn't the, 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 the lead by the way. So I was, I'm tech fellow number seven. I think I was lucky number seven, but, uh, yeah, I think the group grew to 20 something. Um, but what we discovered was that we had this like super, super tight, condensed, knit group of people that wanted to make all this change across an organization of 50,000 people. And it's so hard to push to the outside of that wheel because that's a big wheel, right? And what probably would have made more sense would have been to have hired all of us as individuals and put us in different lines of business on different teams and different groups so that we could have had more of like a grassroots bottom-up approach instead of just like, you know, come down, coming down from the ivory towers approach, right? You yeah, it's kind
0: of like when you try to go to security first and get something done, and they're dictating everything, right?
1: Yeah, uh, at least from yeah. my
0: perspective.
1: <laughs> yeah, oh, nothing oh, against my security that people. One. That, that's, a, that's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, yeah. Um, so, so the idea and the intent was a good one, but this the execution needed work, right? And so, yeah. you know, we we ended up deciding that that it was it was it was better to break up the band. Uh, then to keep this, you know, super group, this Fleetwood Mac of technologists, you know, but, uh, yeah, I think they were a good example of this band, them and the Eagles, right. Two bands where half the people in the band are solo performers and they're all just in a band together. Well, you know, this isn't going to last long, right. but, um, but anyway, and, and on that, and that angle, it actually was kind of cool because we got along extremely well. You'd think a bunch of opinionated senior you know, troublemakers would 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 uh, cause a bunch of trouble with each other, but we actually never did, which I thought was pretty cool.
0: That is pretty cool. Um, I think a lot of companies right now are trying to get the entrepreneurial technology forward, folks, uh, to their business. Uh, how how did Capital One, um, I guess, you know, get those kind of folks over at the same time to their organization?
1: Uh, well. I'm going to invoke a name. His name is Mershed. Mershed Chowdhury is his name. He was a recruiter. They did something interesting. They actually, instead of working with the recruiting team or external recruiters, they actually hired a recruiter. And all he did was look for potential tech fellow candidates. And uh, that was, that was really smart. Um, When you're, when you're targeting, you know, like senior technology people in your organization, you really need to find servant leaders. You need to find the outcome-oriented, team-first, low-ego types. Mm. You can't bring in the ninjas and the rock stars and the, and the, and the heroes. Um, they just make toxic environments. They really do. Okay. And, uh, and so that was, that was something that I felt like they did extremely well with the Tech Fellows program was that we were all super humble. You know, the, 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 the imposter syndrome was real. Every single one of us, I remember I had been there for two years. So my, 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 my situation in the Tech Fellows program was very solid at that point. And I remember sitting in an interview. We had just interviewed a candidate and we were talking about that candidate. And the response, the, 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 the grading on the candidate was just brutal. And I looked at everybody else and I said, okay, why am I here? And they looked at me and they said, what do you mean, Mitch? And I said, there's no way I would have gotten through this interview. Are we, are we trying too hard? as interviewers or are we just, are we trying to protect what we've got or are we just beating up on some unsuspecting, you know, innocent person with just being super brutal in the interview and, uh, everybody stopped and it, it, it started a conversation, right? Because yeah. it, was, it was true. Um, I felt like there's no way I would have gotten through this interview if I would have done it then. Right. So somehow, how did I sneak <laughs> in early? Right. Um, but, uh, and that brings up another interesting point as you, as you progress on your career, what I've seen is that, Your self-awareness and your ability to understand how much, you know, as it goes up, so does your, your, uh, your, uh, so, so does your, your, your lack of confidence. (laughs) It will, you know, and, and it's, uh, it's kind of funny. You can, you can hire someone that's early on in their career and say, okay, here's $30,000. You have two months. I need you to build this web app. And they're like, oh yeah, me and my brother, Roy, we'll just bang this thing out. And then you'll interview another candidate who says, well, hold on, only two months. Why two months? Can it be three? Um, If there's a problem, can we move? um, Where is it hosted? And who's doing DNS? And where's the SSL coming from? And they ask you all these questions. And that's the person that actually knows what's happening. It's not that they don't know what they're doing. They just know that there's so many things outside of their control that they're having, you know, Indigestion thinking about committing to this real deadline and a fixed bid on a project when they know that 50% of their work is going to be based on sitting around waiting for someone else to do what they were supposed to do in the first place. Right. So, so definitely get used to feeling like you're the dumbest person in the room. That's okay. Actually, I would, I would, I would say that means things are going just great. <laughs> if you are the dumbest person in the room, then you're also going to be the one that's learning the most. Yeah. Uh, w-
0: So uh, that interview, you said it was brutal. Like, what were you? What what kind of questions were you asking these people that uh, you've reflected? (laughs) You're like, hey, I couldn't get through that myself, right? At least at that point in my career.
1: Honestly, I just had a similar interview with another startup. I, I who will remain nameless. Okay, but I I met with the CEO who basically it was for a CTO position in a startup, and so I met with the CEO who said, "I'm looking for a business partner. I'm looking for someone." to help me run this business at the strategy level. They need to work with me on investors, work with me on lining up potential clients and business development, but also have this kind of long-term vision for how technology is to be leveraged by this company. And and also from a personnel perspective, scaling growth, all of those things. And for me, that was like, oh yeah, that's my jam. Let's do this. Mm -hmm. Then I met their two most senior technologists. They've gone through two different technical CTOs with the same result. After a year, they decided it wasn't working. And I was interviewed as a technical CTO. They wanted to talk about dual linked lists and they wanted to talk about, you know, how would you, how would you deal with a, you know, like a read through cache or a write through cash. And they were, you know, it, it was, it was one step from why your manhole covers round. And it was so opposite from the conversation I had from the CEO that I thought, okay, you need someone with multiple personality disorder or you need two people. Right. Right. Um, and so you'll, you'll see that in an interview process. Um, the, you know, the bigger companies, the fangs, as they like to call them, you know, Facebook and Amazon and Apple and so on, they'll, they'll have like a multi-stage interview process that can be really rigorous, but a lot of that is just to kind of level you out so they can figure out where you belong in their organization. Once they decide to make an offer, if they do, it's not necessarily, you have to meet this certain bar or we're not going to offer it's more, well, where are you? So we know if you're a good fit for this team or you're a good fit for that team. Um, Cause you can't just, I would, I would love to say parts as parts, but everybody's just slightly different. Right. So you need to know this candidate while you're interviewing them, what they're good at, what they're not good at, you know, where they're strong and what triggers them. Right. Um, that brought up something else I wanted to bring up. I know you're probably going to ask this question. I'll, I'll, I'll jump the gun, but yeah, advice for, for engineers in the interview process? Yes,
0: I, I definitely was going to ask that. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah.
1: I would I would say the number one piece of advice I've got is you are interviewing them every bit as much as they're interviewing you. <laughs> so you need to ask questions like, how often do you have one-on-ones with your direct reports? And how often do you do performance reviews? How prescriptive is the findings and the and the planning from those performance reviews? Do you set goals? You know, if it's twice a year you have performance reviews or once a year performance review, does that mean you have you know, a, 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 path that you're going to help curate with me so that I know where I'm going. So in March, I know I'm doing this. And in July, I'm supposed to be here. And in August I'm, or October, I'm supposed to be there. Uh, you need to find out if the place that you're going, you know, is, is going to, is just going to abandon you with a laptop and you're on your own, or if they're actually going to help you level up and be a part of your mm-hmm. career and part of your growth. And there, and I hate to say this, but there are far too many companies out there that are more than happy to just give you a laptop and leave you to your <laughs> leave you to your own devices, which is usually not good.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there's a huge demand for software engineers. So, um, you know, you being at Cap One, what what would what was Cap One doing, or what should organizations that are tech forward be doing in order to uh, you know be keeping these software engineers happy?
1: Well, their their recruiting and onboarding is second to none. I'll say mm-hmm. that. So they have what's called the TDP program, Technology Developer Program, and that's basically where you grab uh, fresh fresh grads right out of school, yeah. and you'll go through the TDP program where you go through like a three month boot camp, and then you're added to a team for one year, and then after that year, you're added to a totally different team, hopefully unrelated and completely different focus and type of technology. Because the goal is after your second year, you've been exposed to two different groups doing two totally different things, and that makes it easier for you to say, "Okay, this is this is my sorting hat moment, right? This is where I want to go. This is what I want to do." And at that point, you graduate, you know, air quotes, uh, from the TDP program and become a, a proper software engineer, where you're on a team and you're just like everybody else in engineering. Um, that's a fantastic program. The second thing that that Capital One does. Um, and I was, the, I was the first mentor, technology mentor for this was what they call the CODA program, Capital One Developer Academy. Mm. Um, they realized, what about all these folks that went through school with a different major? And then they graduated and they're like, oh, crap, I actually want to write software. I got the wrong degree. Now yeah,
0: there's some really smart people that maybe when they were 17, they didn't pick, you know, computer science.
1: <laughs> yep. You know? Yep. Uh, you can see the instruments hanging on the wall behind me. I was definitely not thinking about computer science. And that's fine. Uh, And uh, so that was basically an opportunity to join like a six month boot camp, where you would go through the CODA program. And when you graduated from the CODA program, you went into the TDP program, which was really cool. So they actually had two different funnels for young engineers to get their career started for the engineers who did get a comp side degree. They could just go straight to the TDP program. If not, then you could join the CODA program. coming through there and and i think that's that's pretty cool um i i didn't have the resources to do something quite so so elaborate when i was at morning consult for example but we did we did take on a couple engineers straight out of boot camp sure and um they're all doing extremely well i'm proud of all of them nice that's great so yeah i i would say you know there if you're there's there's other piece of dice is If you didn't get a a degree, don't despair Um, because one thing that I saw was that the folks that went to boot camps and then they're trying to find a job in software engineering, they're really scrappy and resourceful because they've Mm -hmm. committed to this. They know they're going to take a hit because they didn't get a degree, you know, and so they're kind of at a disadvantage and they don't care. They're they're, they're passionate about what they want to do. These people will typically put in more effort. They'll try harder uh, yeah. to, to, to finish the challenge at hand, uh, or to prepare in advance, for example, uh, then someone who's coming in with a degree who feels maybe a little of entitlement, you know, cause I've, have you know, I, I went to so-and-so school, so sure. I already know what I'm doing. Uh, so, so yeah, you definitely don't, don't discount the bootcamp, the bootcamp boot folks.
0: And I would imagine as an employer, you know, in this world where uh, an engineer who's unhappy could find the next job the next day, you get a lot of loyalty from them. If, if you take them and take a risk on them, or if you put them through, you know, an academy, like you mentioned, in order to give them the skills um, in order to, you know, even have an entry-level software engineering job. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess just uh, giving you an opportunity, Mitch, to just talk about technology as a whole, right? Uh, like what is the biggest area you're curious about right now and why? There's a
1: couple. I was going to say, there isn't one. Yeah, sure. (laughs) There's there's too much going on. I know my
0: answer would just be rambling on for for five minutes. So if that's what it is, it's what it is, you know.
1: Um, One, which is actually kind of a fun response, is uh, what's going to be post-Kubernetes?
0: Oh, I haven't even thought about that. I've just been thinking about how you can... Best use Kubernetes without getting stuck on having to learn Kubernetes. Never mind what's after Kubernetes.
1: That's that's exactly why I'm interested in what's coming after Kubernetes. What layers because, on top of Kubernetes? Yeah, I mean, I yeah. remember because I remember when AWS first came out. Mm-hmm. It was it was and, and apologies to everybody uh, at Amazon, all my friends that are in AWS because I have some. But um, when it first came out, it promised the world, and 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 and. I don't know, gave you like, not the world. I I don't know how to say it. I don't want to be derogatory, pick on somebody's town. But uh, (laughs) the the problem was AWS basically said, come to the cloud. We'll do everything. It's all automatic. It automatically scales and has security built in and load balancing and all this other stuff. Well, None of the Elastic Services were up and running yet. So you're still manually firing up your machine. But all of the tooling that you had for your fixed data center broke and didn't work. So it was, it was like a 10-year step backwards just as to adopt AWS. It was excruciating. It was brutal. And uh, I would say that only now, if you think about it, Terraform came in and was like that killer super glue, pocket knife, uh, uh, spackle, you know, you know, duct tape tool that now you can use infrastructure as code and that makes um, you know, virtual infrastructure so much more manageable. Mm-hmm. Um, but Kubernetes, similar to how AWS in the early years, Kubernetes, as, as it stands right now is promising you all of these wonderful, imagine, you know, amazing things. And everybody's adopting Kubernetes. There's no question about it, right? If you're not getting into Kubernetes, you're, you're behind the game. However, I don't see anybody totally rocking Kubernetes and totally happy with it. And everything goes exactly like it's supposed to. There are, there are tons of areas of improvement as they there's so many
0: companies that are being built to enable Kubernetes, right? Uh,
1: yeah if a tool, if a tool has an entire ecosystem of people who build tools to make that simpler on top, (laughs) then, 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 okay. Is that tool that, that good of a tool? Um, so, so my suspicion is that something else is going to come along and change virtualization and make it way more, um, way more like a lot of the SaaS environments that you're seeing nowadays, right? You see, uh, Fastly and, and Firebase from Google and, and even even LightSail to a degree from Amazon, right? They've, they've, they've tried to make it way more like an appliance where you just, you log into a web interface, you click on, a, on an icon and boom, it's up and running. And uh, the comedy in all this, here's something funny. So Canonical created a tool almost, I would say 15 years ago called Juju. And it was originally done in Python. I think they ended up redoing it and go, but Juju basically did all the stuff that I wished I could do uh, with a lot of cloud environments. Now it's really funny. So you could like drag and drop uh, things. So if you wanted to, like imagine you wanted to run a WordPress blog, you could drop a WordPress you know, uh, logo on your canvas and then you could drop a MySQL logo on your canvas and then connect the two. And it would actually fire up an Nginx load balance cluster with mod PHP, set up WordPress for you, set up a database in MySQL, share those database credentials only with your WordPress app in the config. And it was all secure, it was all visible. It was really cool. And I and I felt like Kubernetes is like taking all the all the ease and simplicity out of that and making me do everything the hard way by hand. Again, mm, interesting. So yeah, I suspect that we're gonna get. We're gonna, we're gonna veer back into simplicity. I feel like we're, we're kind of over-engineering ourselves into the ground. Um, other than that, I think Docker has made it so that when you're, when you're building an app, it no longer matters so much what you're building the app in, right? If it, you know, the, the famous quote from my former CTO at, uh, at Morning Consult when I first got there, he finally says, hey man, if it runs in the container and, pa- and tests pass, what do I care? And, uh, yeah,
0: that's how they should feel as a C-level person or that's how they do. Right.
1: Yeah. Well, it's, and it's a, it's, it can be a smart approach. Uh, if you kind of force yourself to stick around a handful of technologies and get good. Otherwise, what happens is if you get too excited about, I'm going to try all these different things, then you get hello world good at like a hundred different things, but you're not really good at anything. Right. And that's wide and shallow is not helpful. Right. So, but containers make it a lot easier for companies to kind of become more of a polyglot organization and less, Yeah. and, and you don't have so much vendor lock-in either, right? That whole, right. Like, everybody has to have Oracle. Everybody had to have Sybase, you know, those days are gone. You know, mm-hmm. now you can fire up a cluster with pretty much whatever. Now, yeah, whatever nobody uses is. one database anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's a real good example, right? It's Everybody's got Redis. They probably have Postgres. They might have Mongo or Dynamo. Uh, they're probably got Elastic, yeah. you know, and, uh, and the list goes on and on and on. So, you know, Neo4j and, and more more exotic stuff. And then there's event source systems, right? That's that I think is maybe something that a lot of bigger businesses are going to start getting more into. Um, event sourcing systems is uh, is a really smart architecture for for like a like if you if your business is based around. Intake of a bunch of data on like a, a daily basis, and you have to like reprocess, and you have like a monster ETL pipeline of doom and all that other stuff. Yeah. An event source system means you can rerun that pipeline on infinite infrastructure for different reasons and different purposes. And now your your initial source of truth is the data that's coming in into your event systems, mm-hmm. and you can just treat it like a fancy log at that point. Because what that means is that as I w- if I want to build a new a new service and the service only cares about this this particular subset of data that's coming in on a daily basis, I can just attach to that stream as it's coming in nice. and only cherry pick the stuff that I need for my system. And I know that there's a the, that data is living, you know, is persisting on somewhere else. So I can do whatever I want. I can be cavalier and just have no fear at all, be just as, as bold and brave as I choose to be. Uh, and that, I think, puts you in a, in a unique situation where you can do more bold things, more aggressive things with technology. And it's not so risk.
0: Sure. So Mitch, I'm going to try to, to wrap it up of a, of a few things here, and then I'll let you uh, add whatever you want before we say bye. Right. So I, to me, it goes back to those. I think there's a bass guitar. have yeah, Behind you. Right. It, it's uh, uh, are those. Yeah. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's what I'm looking at right now. So it goes back to finding out classical versus jazz, right. That seems to be like the the first step for uh, these engineers to figure out startup first, large organization. Uh, the interview goes both ways, right? I think if you're, you're a good candidate and you're sitting down, you need to make sure that you're landing at the right organization. You'd be asking the right questions. And you talked about some of the characteristics that Cap One has as an organization in order to keep people, right? And then to me, I, 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 the mind-blowing thing for me is like, what's after Kubernetes? What's after K8s? Like the, what you said makes a lot of sense. I just haven't really thought about, uh, you know, I guess who's going to win that. Um, but it, before we wrap up, Mitch, is there anything that you want to make sure that our listeners today, um, hear from you or you get off your chest?
1: Um, yeah, I would say one thing I'd like to, to part with, and that is technology. I said this to somebody else online a couple of weeks ago and didn't realize how profound it was until afterwards, but technology doesn't care who you are. It doesn't care your socioeconomic background it doesn't care about your gender, about your skin tone, your religious preferences or non-preferences or whatever. It doesn't care about any of those things. It's just there. It's just technology. Uh, I think that is fascinating. I think that's one of the coolest things about technology and part of why I got so sucked into it that you can tell with all the instruments, I, I started with a very different career, you know, lived out of a tour bus for two years and, uh, and suddenly became a Unix programmer. So, uh, wow, that was a trip, but um part of what drew me to technology was that I was able to just kind of slay my dragons as I, as I saw fit. And it, and it didn't force me to be somebody that I wasn't, or I have to pretend it or fit in. And, and I, and I think that that's part of what makes a career in technology so satisfying is that you can still be authentic in who you are. And technology could care less. And, uh, and, and I just, I find that just super empowering.
0: That is, and that is a good statement, and I, uh, I'm glad you said that, Mitch. I think technology is an amazing thing, and I think it can open up literally the world, right? And we're seeing that with open source for anyone who's out there. Um, so, with that being said, I am going to wrap it up, and you know, Mitch, thank you for being on. You know, during this time, we try to bring value to our listeners. It's, it's largely the folks that are in, that are in IT engineers and software developers, um, like yourself, right? And uh, in the comments will be my cell phone. So if anyone wants to reach out to me with someone like Mitch, uh, who they'd like to hear from on this kind of podcast, and we provide this platform to IT leaders, please give me a call or send me a note. And then until next time, thank you again, Mitch, and uh, have a wonderful day. It
1: was a pleasure. Thanks.